Hello, good evening, good day, everybody. Welcome back to the Ask Budget Show after a gap of a week. I hope you're all doing very well. As you know, I've been busy traveling. Would you like to see some travel pictures? Here are some travel pictures. Check it out. <laughs> As you can see, I'm getting progressively more tired. And there you are. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's been all... Uh, it's been all airplanes and hotels. Good fun. And there's more of it to come the next week or so. So yeah, I've been busy traveling and I'm very, very happy to be back on the show today, right? So uh, today is a live chat live chat uh, session. And uh, first of all, let's see who all is there with us. Let me see who all is, is here. I can see... Uh, Kaushik, Vladimir, Adityanath, Samir Joshi, Divyang, Sachin, Ojas, Vanos, Spot, Viraj, Asmanor, Kamlesh, Ashutosh, Saurabh, Paresh, Ujwal, Rishi, Anahita, The Oldie, 98 Years, Ganga Singh, Sky D Gaming, Rahul, Vanos, Hindu, Share, Putin, Raptor, Rogue, Samarth, Knowledge with Anadi, Partha Day, Crazy Brain, Chiching, Priyanshu, Karan Singh, Aditya Juneja, Ryash Raut, Bhavyanath, Abhiman, Kurti, Shreyansh, Ash, Ajit, Bhavik, Bhaigiri, Kari, Minati, Lovers, Abhik, Majumdar, Tanmay Patel, Jimmy Hopkins, Typical Gamer, Shubham, Rishab, Manmat, PR Ayush, Honey Gaming, Prachit, and uh, One Tap, ZZZZZ. PR Ayush, Rohan, Diraj, Thakar, Abotani, Mahatma Gandhi ji is here with us. Kushbu Kumar, Janil, Sankalp, Critical Grey and lots of other people. Good evening, good day. Thank you for being back on the show with me. And uh, yeah, so uh, we're going to take questions from the live chat. Tomorrow I'm going to be taking questions from the comments. So if you have questions for me, let's get into it. Start asking your questions and we will discuss everything and anything under the sun. Whatever you see fit, let's go ahead and do that. Okay, let's see. Uh, Abhishek says, have you ever read the work of Rajneesh Osho? Uh, unfortunately, I have not read any of his works. I am sure that he has uh, uh, written some books, I'm sure. And there are lots of transcripts of his of his uh, speeches and his uh, uh, what do they call them pravachans or whatever it is. Yeah, many of those things are available online. So uh, I'm sure one can buy that. I personally have never read any of that. I have seen some of his videos, some of the video clips. He clearly was a very intelligent person, a very sharp person, and he could be quite humorous as well. He had a, he had a very wicked sense of humor. Um, very interesting person. I remember when I was a kid, like, you know, when I was like less than 10 years old, uh, I was living in Europe at the time. And at that time, I believe Raj, uh, Rajneesh Osho was, uh, he had his uh, commune or whatever they call it in the United States. And yeah, th there was quite a buzz around that. And eventually, I think uh, he came back to India and they were all, I mean, that's a whole very interesting, very convoluted story about uh, Rajneesh and his ashram and his followers. And uh, there were there were power struggles within his followers, you know, within the, the society he had created, the community he had created, and so on. Very interesting story. I think he was a brilliant person. Uh, yeah, so I have not read his works, but I think 
I may want to in the future if I get the time, right? All right. Let's go to Swapnil. Why are earthquakes so difficult to predict as compared to other types of natural disasters? Hashtag geophysics. Right, earthquakes. You know, the, the Indian subcontinent is an earthquake-prone region. It's not part of the belt of fire. The belt of fire is something that uh, runs through Indonesia. Japan is part of it. And, you know, it's the entire rim of fire where you have all the volcanoes. And it's an earthquake-prone region. The Andamans is part of that. We have a couple of, at least one volcano, two volcanoes, I believe, in the Andaman uh, archipelago region, you know. Volcanoes on Indian territory. One is the Narokandam. One is the Barren Island volcano, right? So India actually is an earthquake-prone region if you look at a larger time period. You see it uh, decade upon decade, you will not see much happening except for smallish earthquakes. But if you look at it century upon century, that way, you're going to have massive earthquakes. Especially in the Himalayan region, which is still rising. It's very tectonically unstable. The Himalayas are still rising in height. Every year, it's like a few centimeters you know, a couple of centimeters or so, which seems to be very, very small from our perspective, but overall it's big, you know, so they're going to rise much higher in the future. And we have earthquakes in the Himalayan region. We, there was an earthquake, I don't know, two, three decades ago in the uh, Uttarakashi region. And then more recently, there was a massive earthquake in Nepal. So it would suddenly make uh, great sense to uh, develop means of predicting earthquakes because earthquakes can be very damaging. Uh, they obviously... Uh, destroy property, they destroy infrastructure, but also human life, right? So I'm sure you cannot move infrastructure away. It's all built upon the land. You can't move infrastructure, but you can certainly save human lives if you're able to predict the earth, uh, earthquakes. Even if you have a lead time of 30 minutes, you can save a lot of lives if you know that, that, that an earthquake is going to happen. So why is it so difficult to predict earthquakes? Well, the reason for that is because earthquakes uh, originate in subterranean tectonic activity. So below the surface of the earth, we have various layers of the earth, right? Let's let's look it up. What are the layers? Layers of earth. Let me put that on the screen. Where are we? Here we are. Mm, layers of earth. That's the Google search I'm doing, and hopefully it will show us something interesting. So... Okay, these are the various layers. You have the Earth's crust, you have the mantle, the outer core, the inner core. So, and uh, below the crust, you have the mantle, which essentially is, is magma. Magma is what uh, comes out to the surface as lava, right? That's what we see uh, that erupts from volcanoes. And then there is, I don't know, all kinds of other stuff. Uh, so you have the crust, the upper mantle, mantle, outer core, inner core, and so on. So the crust is the solid layer. The mantle... The upper and lower mantle, that's the magma layer. That's where you have molten rock at very high temperatures. It's so hot that the rock melts. And that's the lava that comes out of volcanoes. So, and on top of that, you have the, the, uh, the solid crust, which moves around. So inside the earth, there is this entire ocean of, of magma. And the earth's crust essentially floats on that. The, the magma is quite thick. It's quite viscous, right? It's like, imagine the difference between, between water and honey. Honey is much thicker, right? So magma is even thicker than that. It's molten rock. So the earth's crust floats around on that and you have all these uh, tectonic uh, activity, you know, tectonic plates that um, you have subduction or tectonic plates that go under 
other plates and some plates collide and all that. And it is all of this activity that gives rise to volcanism as well as earthquakes. Now, the thing is that we don't know much of what's happening underground. We can't see it. And uh, the deepest people have drilled underground is just thin holes that go back about, I don't know, 10, 15, less than 15 kilometers. Yeah. And uh, the magma layer is way below that. So we don't know what's happening under the Earth's surface. We don't even know what's under the oceans, you know, much of it. So because we have almost no data about what the conditions are in the magma layer and all the tectonic activity, that's why we are unable to predict earthquakes with any accuracy. Now, people use a variety of means. You know, they, they observe the behavior of animals, of birds, of, of fish and, uh, and cats and dogs and all that. And... Uh, Typically, what happens is that before an earthquake occurs, there is some kind of uh, activity. You know, when it comes to birds and animals, they are able to hear sounds that we can't hear. For instance, there is this very popular euphemism called dog whistle, right? So, dog whistle is a whistle that uh, that vibrates in the ultra sound range. It's what dogs can hear, but we can't hear. Even bats can hear that. So, when it comes to various uh, the tectonic activity, there are certain vibrations that occur which could be either very low frequency vibrations or high frequency vibrations. Most likely, these will be low frequency vibrations and some animals and birds can sense that, they can detect it. And when some such thing happens, it, it looks like they can actually tell that something bad is going to happen, like an earthquake. And they become uneasy and all that. So if you know what patterns of behavior to look for look for among animals and birds then maybe you would know that maybe an earthquake is impending but that's a very uh, rough and approximate and inaccurate way of trying to predict earthquakes ideally you would want to know roughly within an hour's time when an earthquake could happen you know maybe like in in 24 hours there could be an earthquake that sort of thing so uh, because we have so little data of what's happening below the Earth's surface, that's why it's so difficult to predict earthquakes. Now, let us look at some other questions. <clears throat> All right. Uh, Russia, Ukraine is... A <laughs> yeah, that, that is... Uh... Okay, let us... What, what, is, what is this question? RTK. In a conversation with Prakhar... You talked about not promoting fanaticism, but what would you advise those guys who've kind of become fanatic against some communities about after knowing the actual truth? Uh, look, I obviously am against any form of fanaticism, any form of violence, any of that. If some people have become fanatics against somebody else, I would say that uh, we need to revisit and rethink such uh, attitudes. Uh I'm not talking about any specific community or group of people or anything. I'm just saying, making a general statement that, you know, India is a rising nation. India, the past 1000 years has been destroyed thoroughly, right? Especially in the past 300 years under European occupation, right? And now India is finally once again rising economically and geopolitically. And India, if India is to rise, all Indians need to work together to do that. If a certain segment or segments of society, if certain segments of society, uh, like you say, are promoting, are, are becoming fanatic or whatever, I'm, I'm, I'm not mentioning, I'm not you know pointing figures at anybody. I'm just saying that if, suppose there are certain segments of society, one segment or five segments or 17 segments, whatever, who become fanatic 
and and that's going to be counterproductive to india's rise what needs to happen is everybody irrespective of whatever ideology they believe in or whatever belief system they espouse or whatever religious uh, beliefs they have it doesn't matter we are all indians we all have to work together we have to cooperate together we have to come together and take the nation forward together if you have all this internal friction and internal <clears throat> all these troubles then india is never going to uh, go ahead and and become what uh, you know re- regain its its rightful place in uh, the world affairs and world history so i would advise anybody who has uh, i don't know whatever like you say fanatic uh, mindset or whatever that uh, you need to uh, we need to all work together right we need to all work together we need to all come together india is uh, the oldest and greatest civilization and no matter what uh, religion you belong to no matter what ideology you believe in you we all have the same ancestors we all have the same heritage we all have the same past and we need to come together work together cooperate together collaborate together work harmoniously to take the nation and our great civilization forward once again and restore it to its rightful place in the world order so that's what i would say these petty small frictions you know they they don't serve any real purpose we have to all work together and take the nation forward all right <clears throat> let's see some other questions why don't humans have eyes with red irises interesting question now uh, can you think of any mammal any animal that has eyes with red irises i cannot think of any if you look at cats they've got yellow or green irises you look at dogs dogs typically have blue no sorry brown irises mostly some of them have blue irises some some animals have heterochromia you know irises of different colors so even some humans have that and so on but i cannot think of any animal uh, that has red irises so iris color is, you know i would brown irises like it's, like you can see and and it's typically the result of genetics it's the result of what you have inherited from your ancestors um so i i think it's it's because we have evolved in a certain way and maybe it was it was not uh it was not something that helped to have red irises perhaps i mean why don't people have green irises uh, some people do why don't people have violet irises for instance yeah so maybe it, it's it's not something that's conducive to long term um, uh you know it's 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 not a, a factor that helps you do better in the long run maybe so maybe uh, if such uh, mutations happen that they must have been weeded out in the evolutionary game maybe yeah so uh, so it looks like as far as i can think i cannot think of any animal that has red irises so maybe that's a recessive trait or a trait that is not very good for long term survival maybe that's the reason why yeah it's all about uh, it's all about, all about evolution it's all about survival of the fittest so only those genetic traits and physical traits are propagated across the generations over a long period of time that are actually beneficial to the survival and and uh, thriving of the species those traits that don't quite promote a better future for the species uh, they typically get weeded out in the long term game of the of evolution so that's what would have happened i expect all right uh, 
let us see some other questions um oh very interesting rabbits have red eyes interesting rabbits are well <laughs> rabbits yeah interesting do they have red eyes maybe they do good for them but uh, maybe maybe it's not something that is helpful to them perhaps i don't know what it is rabbits aren't quite the scariest creature and not the you know the, they they are they are they typically serve as food for foxes and wolves and cats and eagles and all that so yeah maybe <laughs> it's not really beneficial for them uh mr gandhi says mahatma gandhi says am i a bad leader sir sir your time is over so it doesn't matter right we obviously india needs to obviously uh, revisit its history and revisit all the the careers of its its major leaders the most influential leaders the most consequential le- leaders mr gandhi was certainly one of the most consequential uh political figures in india in the 20th century no doubt about that he uh did a lot to shape the kind of future and the kind of course india took politically and geopolitically and economically and uh, you know in in a variety of ways mr gandhi e- even today is enormously influential because the government still officially espouses uh, his various ideologies and viewpoints and all that so uh, it's something this generation of indians and future generations will have to do properly they will have to revisit the history not from the pers- from the, from the perspective of dogma what is dogma dogma is the product and the result of other people's thinking dogma is when you just accept somebody's perspective and make it your own okay this person i like this person i like his personality i like his uh, way of talking so i'm going to believe everything he says so it's when you stop thinking critically and just uh, accept somebody else's opinion at face value what needs to happen is we need to do critical thinking it means you look at a person's career a leader's career and examine their actions from the perspective of logic from the perspective of the national interest and who whom did those actions actually serve then one of the major problems i see among indians is that they look at a person's words oh but he wrote this he wrote that and he said this and he has so much writings in which he said so so, so many nice things indians place so much emphasis on words and indians don't look at actions i don't care what someone wrote i want to see what were their that person's actions and what were the consequences of those actions whom did those actions benefit and whom do, did those actions serve it doesn't matter what that person said or wrote or spoke so please understand this this is part of critical thinking ignore words ignore statements just look at actions and that is where i would say 99% of indians fail they only look at words so So yeah Mr Gandhi uh, we will indeed uh, <laughs> uh, revisit your career at, at, at various apo- appropriate times i'm sure lots of historians will do that and uh, we i think it is it is this generation of indians and future generations generations of indians who will pass the verdict upon you whether you were a good leader or a bad leader or whatever it was right yeah <clears throat> Pratik Shivastav, what is your take on German statement about Kashmir? I am not aware of any statement that Germany has made, but uh, I will look it up, and uh, maybe I will take such a question up tomorrow. What we have to understand about Germany 
is that Germany is a it's a it's a big economy for sure. It's uh, the economic and industrial powerhouse essentially that drives the economy of Europe. But when it comes to foreign policy, when it comes to geopolitics, Germany is an extension of the U.S. empire. That's what it is. Germany is, well, to put it bluntly, a U.S. vassal state. It doesn't have an independent foreign policy. It, The German constitution was written by, essentially by Americans. It was written by proxy by German politicians who were selected by the victorious Americans. So it was made to look like the Germans wrote their own constitution, but it was actually all done by the Americans. And if there was a single word the Americans did not like, they would have, be, may have it changed. And most likely such things happened. So the German constitution was written by Americans. Germany is essentially run as per the, um, uh, the way the Americans want it to be, to be run. German internal security policy, foreign policy, all of that, it is 100% in line with uh, the national interest of the United States. And so uh, any statements that Germany makes regarding Kashmir or whatever, we, you, we have to regard those as essentially American statements. Now, we know what the Americans have been up to in the past few days about Kashmir. Uh, this is just the beginning. The United States regards India as a long-term rival, right? When you are a superpower, when you are an empire, you don't think like the common man, woman, and child on the street. You have to think very differently. And now, uh, I get this question often. People ask me that India is still a three-point-something trillion-dollar economy. India is not a big economy. Why would the Americans be worried about India? So that's what people's, people don't grasp. A superpower, an empire, doesn't look at things from a week-to-week -week perspective. They think in terms of decades and centuries. In 20 years, India is going to be a major economy, though if things go the way they are going today. And uh, that is something which doesn't will not go down well with the US. They don't want any challenge to them in any way whatsoever. So they will start taking action now in a variety of ways. You know? So if there has been a German statement on Kashmir, I would expect, I've not seen it, but I would expect that it would be kind of annoying to India and kind of, you know, uh, kind of ambiguous and kind of, uh, kind of pro-Pakistan perhaps. Yeah, that's what I'm guessing. So if it is that, then it is nothing but the American policy, foreign policy at play, right? Uh, okay. Is the, Akhilesh says, is the US taking revenge by giving F-16s to Pakistan as we did not listen to them in Russia-Ukraine decisions? It's not revenge. Uh, yeah, well, they, they are, first of all, they aren't giving any new aircraft to Pakistan. They are offering Pakistan a roughly $450 million uh, upgrade package. So they are upgrading those uh, F-16 fighter planes to a newer configuration, more modern configuration, which will make those uh, fighter planes more effective in, in any future war against India. Right? So the Americans are actively uh, harming India's national interest and they are uh, arming India's, you could say, one of India's principal adversaries. This is a hostile action. So why are they doing this? There are multiple reasons. First of all, yeah, they wanted India to fall in line with them vis-a-vis -vis the Ukraine-Russia thing. Yeah, they wanted India to, they want India's foreign policy to be the US foreign policy. Whatever the Americans want, India must do. And since India is not falling in line like a good boy, the Americans are now uh, realizing that India is now becoming uh, 
you know beginning it's it's ascent to something which is uh, a much larger role in geopolitics india is already regarded by many uh, experts who may not say this openly but it's india is already regarded as a great power so there is one superpower there is an aspiring superpower the one superpower is the us the aspiring superpower is china which is kind of derailed the the aspirations are right now kind of derailed and then there are two great powers these are india and russia nations like france and germany these are medium uh, medium sized powers these are not great powers they look like great powers from outside because they are economically developed and industrialized and all that but these are satellite states of the us so you have the the one empire the one superpower us you have an aspiring superpower which is china and then you have two great powers india and russia so uh, so in the us wants to counterbalance india the, you, the us will slowly start ramping up its pressure on on india that's how i see things going and uh, it's not only because india is not towing the american line and not obeying american dictates on russia it's also because india is rising so even if india were to fall in line with american demands vis-a-vis its its foreign policy it, the us would still do such things like giving uh you know like arming india's enemies because they see india as a long term threat they don't want any nation to rise and be a threat in the future so yeah that's the reason why lucario says your views on ukraine blowing up the crimea bridge yeah so this uh, incident happened there was a massive uh, truck bomb explosion on the bridge okay let's since we're talking about a bridge we should take a look at the bridge on the map because we love the map where's the map here's the map all right here it is so let's go okay first of all let me orient you all in case you don't know where which geographical region we're talking about so here we have india on the globe we all know where it is now let's go westwards westwards and then you have this region the black sea north of anatolia present day turkey and then you have this peninsula over here which is called the crimean peninsula you have the city of sevastopol yalta and kerch and all that so there's a bridge here this is the bridge that con- that, that connects the russian mainland with the peninsula of crimea so this here is the crimean bridge now i'm not sure where the explosion happened it would be somewhere along along this bridge yeah it's a few kilometers long maybe uh maybe about 10 12 13 14 kilometers long there's an island in between which uh, fortifies the bridge so there was an explosion very recently less than 24 hours ago on the bridge a truck bomb explosion suicide explosion a suicide bomber uh and parts of the bridge have been damaged uh some of it it looks like it is still serviceable so it's not closed entirely to, to traffic but yes it's been disrupted and significant repairs will have to be done the pillars that hold up the bridge haven't been destroyed but uh the the uh, top section of, on one side of the bridge seems to have been damaged significantly at a certain point and it will take some time before it is restored to its uh, to the to its working condition now uh, obviously when something like this happens we don't know who who has done it but all the only question we have to ask 
is who benefits from this. And it's clear that NATO benefits from this. And who's NATO's puppet? It's Ukraine, right? Uh, so most likely it would be some a Ukrainian person who has done this or it has been done at the behest of NATO by Ukraine. Most likely, I'm not saying I know anything. I know nothing. I, I can only see things as they happen. And then I can make deductions based on what makes sense. Yeah. So uh, it certainly does look like it's either Ukraine or NATO. And NATO would not get involved directly in this. When I speak about NATO, obviously it means the United States. The US will not get involved directly in any of, the, in any of these things. That's why they're using proxies. Ukraine is a proxy for the US. So if uh, this has be, this has happened, as we know it has, then it has been most likely would have been done by, by Ukraine and on behalf of NATO. And the Ukrainians... Uh, I believe they have been tweeting gleefully about what happened, sick burn or whatever they said. They said, yeah, one of their major Twitter accounts and all. So yeah, this is something that is par for the course in a war. And what's the, what are going to be the consequences of this? There is obviously going to be some kind of Russian response to this. The Russians uh, will not sit back and take this. So there could be the Russians have. A variety of means of responding to this, and uh, they can chase, they can choose a time and a place of their of their choosing to respond. There could be conventional, uh, you know, missile attacks or, or or bombings, artillery artillery attacks. You could have cyber attacks. The Russians can they have a variety of tools at their disposal. There could be asymmetric uh, response responses to this. Yeah, so we don't know yet what the response is going to be like now, the bridge obviously they will work overnight to restore it to working condition uh, which may take a little bit of time perhaps but yeah there, there most likely will be some kind of retaliation from Russia and let's see how that goes so like I had said about a week or so ago we are entering now the most dangerous part of the Ukraine conflict yeah and yeah let's take this question where is it yeah, Prabuddha Tripathi. Uh, do you think Russia is losing? So yesterday I was in a hotel. Uh, I was in a hotel room and I had nothing to do for an hour or so. So I was I had put the TV on, you know, hotel rooms have TV. So I put the TV on without the sound. And there are the, I was watching a variety of Hindi news channels. Yeah, Indian news channels in Hindi. And my goodness, look at the kind of propaganda they're putting out. I mean, it's totally one-sided. And if you watch these news channels, you will get the feeling that Russia is about to lose in the next half hour. Yeah. So uh, the Indian news channels are essentially serving as as uh, they are echoing blindly the Western viewpoint on what's happening. It's like Ukraine is is winning the war. Ukraine is destroying Russia. The Russians are falling back everywhere. Everything is being destroyed, and Ukraine is winning. And so that's the kind of reporting I'm seeing on 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 uh, Indian news media. And even when it comes to the very prominent two or three. Indian English news channels that that have been covering the Ukraine conflict. Once again, it has been completely one-sided coverage. I, I have nothing against being biased. Everybody has some bias of some kind. Whether it's uh, whether you know about it or not, whether you realize or not, you are biased in some way. Everybody is. But the bias is the the one-sided nature of the coverage is very disappointing. So there are these news channels. They will send one or two reporters to cover the conflict from the ground, and each of these news channels sends their reporters to the to the Ukrainian uh, territory. So they are reporting from the Ukrainian positions. They are embedded within the Ukrainian military. 
and obviously the coverage is going to be entirely from ukraine's perspective why don't they for the sake of balance also send a couple of reporters to the russian territory the russian uh, held regions and embed them within the russian military so we can see two perspectives and get a balanced coverage none of them is doing this they are all doing it from ukraine's perspective from nato's perspective so the indian media is essentially acting as a tool of nato that's what you are getting and if you watch these news channels which i don't blame you for then you will obviously get the impression that russia is losing now obviously russia is up against a very powerful opponent nato is all powerful the us is the only superpower in the world they they actually are capable of uh, destroying russia's conventional military if they want to but obviously it is extremely dangerous for them to even contemplate that because of russia's disproportionately strong non conventional might right so that's the brahmastra uh, so to say that russia has and uh, so w- do i think russia is losing if you if i if i were to see all the news coverage on on social media on the bbc on the cnn on the american media on the U, on the english speaking media worldwide or in the eu eu media if you look at the news coverage there or on twitter or on facebook wherever else you will clearly get the feeling that russia is losing and they have been losing since february 24 and yet uh, the truth is i'm sure somewhat different from that so we don't get to see the russian perspective at all so i i don't think russia is losing i'm not sure if they are winning so what's happening <laughs> the russians are biding their time because you know what winter is coming they want winter to come right europe is facing an energy crisis uh, somebody has blown up uh, a certain a major part of the nord stream pipeline that supplies gas to europe, to europe so the europeans are now uh, in a position to have to beg the americans for natural gas and whatever and they will have to buy that that energy at substantially higher prices than what they would have acquired from the russians so europe is now at america's mercy there is still one portion of the nord stream pipeline that uh, is undamaged and the russians could possibly uh, send gas to europe through that there's also the other polish uh, pipeline that uh, they have uh, the the nato the nato side has opened so they could uh, do it from there but yeah overall what we are seeing is there is there is there are signs of recession worldwide in the us in europe uh inflation is 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 at a high uh various european currencies have been hammered by the us dollar and we are seeing the prospect of a very harsh hard and cold winter you know you could have power cuts you could have uh, you know no no heating in in homes in india if you don't have any heating in your homes during winter especially in the southern part of india you're okay you know in europe people can freeze to death if that happens because europe is at much higher latitudes compared to india so there are all these problems and the russians will want to wait till winter and see how this winter how europe fares in this winter so the russians are playing the long game they know that europe is hurtling into a crisis and europe is the opponent europe is a proxy of the us the one major power in nato and in the european union is the us it's not germany it's not france it's not the uk it's not italy it's not spain it's not anybody else the only real power in europe in western europe is the us and they now hold europe hostage and they want to enrich themselves at europe's cost so 
So the Russians are, are going to bide their time. Winter is coming. It's going to be a very hard winter for Europe. I really feel sorry for the for the innocent men, women, and children of Europe, the innocent citizens of Europe who have done nothing to deserve this. Yeah, I really feel sorry for them. But this is how the world has always been. It's always the innocent who suffer in war, and that's what we are going to see now. So the Russians, from their side, they're going to bide their time. Let this drag on. Let this go on into winter. Let winter get over, and then you may see some some action happening. And yeah. So there's a whole lot happening right now. The Russia Russia has annexed uh, about one fifth of Ukraine right now, and uh, if the Europeans, if, if the Ukrainians try to take that back, you could see uh, significant uh, escalations in the conflict. So, yeah, hmm. dangerous times right now. Very dangerous times. All right. Um, did I see something? Um, Okay, Nikhil Kumar says, what are your views on the new education policy 2020? Uh, I, what are my views? I think it's not going to make much of a difference. Yeah, I'm sure there are small improvements and small cosmetic changes and some small non-cosmetic changes too. Maybe they're going to revise some of the textbooks and have more accurate history in there. Oh, but overall, I think it's not a big deal. And why do I say this? So I have two or three episodes on education. I don't know what numbers they are. It's been a long time. Episode 30, 32, 31, somewhere there. If you want to see, you can look at that in which I've gone into detail in, into these matters. Now, ask yourselves, my dear friends, this simple question. What is the purpose of education? What's the purpose of education? The answer is very simple. The purpose of education is to give the nation highly skilled, highly capable confident young citizens that's the simple purpose of education right it education must empower every boy and every girl to to rise to their to the highest of their potential to maximize their potential is that what the education system in india does no it gives the nation confused and underconfident young adults who don't know, who are clueless, right? They have no confidence. They have no real skills. The only skill you learn in the education system is how to pass exams, how to memorize large amounts of text, to reproduce those texts, the text in, in those long essay type questions, memorize stuff and pass exams. That's the only skill, skill you acquire. You don't really acquire any other skill in the education system. And by the time you're done with the education system, by the time you enter the job market, you have no real skills. So let's say you go into, let's say an IT job. You're going to have to be trained all over all over again the first three to six months. And then you will acquire actual real world skills that will be of any benefit to, your, to, the, to the company that has hired you. And that applies to any field, not only IT, anywhere else, right? So the education system doesn't give you any real skills. And by the time you're done, you're confused. You have no idea what, what your strengths are. You don't even learn how to learn things. It doesn't teach you critical thinking. It doesn't... So these are all the problems. You know, it, it, it produces young adults who hate their own culture, who, are, who, who feel ashamed of, of their culture and their history and their civilization and of their, of their ancestors. Yeah. So it is something that is greatly counterproductive to, to the nation, to the civilization. And the, this new education policy doesn't address any of that. As far as I can see, it addresses none of the, none of the core issues. 
So that's my view about this. We are still far away from having a good education system. Uh, the education system is colonial in nature. It is a continuation of the 19th century colonial education system that the British imposed upon India in order to destroy India's culture and civilization. The Macaulayan education system. And that's what still continues in India today. So the new education policy, does it undo that? Does it uh, thoroughly reform the education system? It does not. So, yeah, it doesn't excite me in any way whatsoever. It's it's like putting a band-aid on a gunshot wound, on a bullet wound, right? So, yeah, so I, I don't have any great hopes from, for, about this. From this, yeah, there are some benefits, some positives that maybe some textbooks will be revised and you may get to learn more accurate history. And then there's the problem of the multiple languages you have to study. So you have to study your mother tongue, you have to study Hindi, and you have to study English. Three languages you should be studying in only one language, whatever your mother tongue is. And English needs to be done away with at the earliest possible time because it, it perpetuates mental colonization, right? So yeah, and I know lots of people disagree with me. Well, feel well free, free to free, feel free to disagree, yeah? But I am very clear about this. India needs to get rid of English, this colonial imposition upon us. India, India, there's only one language, only one language that is appropriate for being India's national language. That is Sanskrit. And here comes the hit, which is fine. I don't care. So yeah, the only language that can serve as India's national language, as India's civilizational language is Sanskrit. We can revive it in, in just 20 years if we want to. If, but I'm sure it's something the government doesn't want to take up right now because there are there are other issues to, to, to worry about. So I would like to see a two-language policy. The national civilization language should be Sanskrit and the, the other language should be your mother tongue, whatever it is. Whether it is Kannada, whether it is Telugu, whether it is Tulu, whether it is Kashmiri, whether it is Assamese, whether it is Marathi or whatever, Odia, whatever. Two languages maximum. You learn in a mother tongue and you learn the civilizational, civilizational language and let's get rid of the language of the colonial oppressors. We don't need that. People say English is the language of science and progress and all that. What utter nonsense. Do you think uh, the the do, do you think the 20th century advances in science were done in English? Who, who do you think invented, came up with quantum mechanics? The entire history, the first 20-30 years of quantum mechanics are, are all about the German language and the French language mostly, and some Italian, right? None of it was done in English. So where, where where did the English advantage go? And look at all the nations that do really well in the world today, the top 10 economies. How many of them use English as their primary language? The Russians, they became a superpower. Did they do it through English? No. It was Russian. Look at the French. They are proud of the French language. All the education, all the science, all the technology is done in French. Look at the Chinese. Do you think they force their kids to, to learn English? No. Look at the Japanese. Look at the Germans. Indians need to get over this mental colonization, this slave mindset that English is great and we our, our uh, languages are inferior. So it's all because of the education system that people have this mentality and this mindset and this belief. And I don't blame people for having such beliefs. So it will things will only change. Indians will become confident only when these core issues are addressed. So it's not been addressed right now, so I don't give a damn about this goddamn new education policy 2020. It doesn't really do much. Not much. Small small progress, good, okay. Thank you very much, really appreciate it, but yeah, not enough. Not enough. So yeah, that is one of my major criticisms of this government. Yeah. <clears throat> 
all right let us yeah there you go somebody has a great <laughs> sir sir thank you for pointing it out pointing it out like i said we are all mentally colonized i am more comfortable in english than in any of the indian languages you see that is the state we are in that's why this podcast is, is in english and the other reason this podcast is in, is in english is that i want the world to know what what my perspective is and what india's position is and what, what what is right for india and unfortunately today the language of the world is english and the language if i if i if i start speaking in hindi half my audience even the indian audience will not will possibly not be able to understand me so thank you for pointing it out sir uh, very astute observation <laughs> i'm not trying to make fun of you at all sir but yeah it is unfortunately this is where we are today because of the education system let's say i start doing the podcast in sanskrit will you understand what i'm saying so there's no point uh, pointing this out because it doesn't help anybody sir <clears throat> yeah there you go if we all if we get rid of english won't we be cut off from the rest of the world is china cut off from the rest of the world is japan cut off from the rest of the world is france cut off from the rest of the world does the chinese foreign minister give give uh, his his uh, uh, communications in english does the ministry of foreign affairs or the any ministry in china give addresses and give communicate communiques in english does the french president go and speak to everybody in english what what this is the problem and i don't blame this person who has put put this comment this is what we have we have been made to believe that without english we are isolated we are done we are finished that is not the case any self respecting nation will have its education system in its own native language whether it is the one civilization language or whatever the mother tongue is in in case of these small countries like france and germany that's there's only one language major language so they have their education system in that language you go to study in germany you're going to have to learn german go do you, you know that you go to sweden you know study there you're going to have to learn swedish they will not allow you to st to study in english so yeah you you get rid of english you, you will not be cut off from the rest of the world the world will respect you more and that's what we don't get because this is the kind of brainwashing that's done to us to, done to us through the education system you know in the indian education system what sort of kid is considered to be an intelligent kid a kid who speaks good english are see see how good his or her english is they are so intelligent you have a, a good you know a, uk like accent good god that's that's the sign of intelligence not how well you understand things how well you analyze things not your critical thinking ability not your knowledge the accent in which you speak english that is what matters so this is the kind of mental colonization we have all been subjected to so i don't blame people for having these beliefs these attitudes it is not your fault my dear mm -hmm. friends right but it is something that needs to be addressed and it is not for you and me and for the common people of india to address this the government needs to get its act together but i understand why they're not doing it right now you <laughs> you look at the history of the past few years any major change the government tries to to make it is met with incredible incredible backlash sometimes it comes from within the government sometimes it comes from various political parties that could or could not may or may not have foreign funding uh the academic system the so called civil society and then the media and the media brainwashes you all into believing various things and then obviously your favorite influencers whoever they are uh, i'm sure there are many 
So any kind of reform, any major reform the government attempts to do, it invites an enormous backlash from coordinated backlash from the media, from the academia, from the intelligentsia, from the uh, from the so-called intellectuals, from uh, from uh, foreign media, from from politicians, from various political parties, all coordinated together, and and they try to make it look like the government is trying to destroy the country. Yeah, so that's why the government is currently not trying to. Uh, reform the education system too much because it's 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 going to be a very long and dirty fight and there are bigger problems to address right now so yeah i get it but yeah it, it kind of it still you know disappoints me but uh, i do understand why it is the way it is right now so yeah this mental colonization colonization is going to continue enjoy all right um <clears throat> Upasana says, when everybody speaks a language, then all the content will be in that language. Yeah. So if we could, uh, so if we could all be educated in just our mother tongue and the national or civilizational language, then the bridge language, the connecting language will once again be our civilizational language, which is Sanskrit. I always advocate Sanskrit because it is the only language that makes sense. It is the language that, that, uh, that brought not only the Indian subcontinent together, but also most of Asia, Eastern Asia, you know, Java, Sumatra, Indonesia, Philippines, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, Korea, Japan, China, all of that. There was one civilizational language in the entire extended Indosphere, Sanskrit. So I would say that we should have a two-language policy. Every child should learn only two languages. One is your mother tongue, your primary, your main education should be in your mother tongue because you understand any concept much better in your mother tongue than as opposed to first learning a foreign language and then trying to learn concepts through that foreign language. And Sanskrit is our real mother tongue. It is, it's the language that gives us most of our vocabulary in most Indian languages. Yeah. So it's also a language that will be very easy to learn. So one should have two, uh, we should have a two language policy and the linked language, the bridge language, the civilizational language should, should be Sanskrit. So if everybody speaks that, then all the content will be in that language. That language will see a revival. And if you revive Sanskrit, you're reviving Indian civilization. So yeah, I would like to see that happen, but it's not going to happen anytime soon, unfortunately. <clears throat> all right, uh, let's see some other questions. <laughs> Who, according to you, is going to win the 24 elections? I, I don't know. I cannot see the future. I hope that the current government uh, will uh, remain in power because it's the only government that makes sense and that's the only government that is capable of it taking India forward. Am I biased? Yes, I'm biased. I'm biased in favor of India. I want India to do well. And I don't see any other political party taking India forward in the right direction. Yeah, so I am biased. I'm, I'm perfectly clear about that. And I make no apologies for that. I hope the BJP and Mr. Modi win the 24 elections. <clears throat> Tamil. I have the greatest of love and respect for Tamil, right? So yes, one should cherish Tamil, one should promote Tamil. I would say that other Indians, even those who are non-Tamil, should learn Tamil, as, as they should learn other languages too. Uh, Kannada, Telugu, beautiful languages, Tulu. I mean, nobody speaks about Tulu. What about Odia? Why is Odia neglected? Yeah? Why is Odia ne neglected? Why doesn't anybody want to learn Assamese? Why doesn't anybody want to learn uh, Manipuri? Uh, and so on. We should cherish all our languages. And I'm sick and tired of certain people 
trying to uh, certain certain people having this supremacist attitude that my language is superior and all all other languages are inferior some pe- some people a small minority of people have such attitudes so like i said we need to stop fighting amongst each other we are one people we are one civilization we need to cooperate we have to work together support each other stop fighting and take the nation and the civilization forward please let's do that <clears throat> Tushar says, any specific reason for not cutting your hair? <clears throat> yeah, and no specific reason. Uh, the last time I had a haircut was uh, sometime in 2019. And then I got myself a crew cut. There's a video on this channel in which I'm, I give an address. Um, during a book release, it was a book release by uh, two authors, uh, Major General G.D. Bakshi and uh, Shrikant Talageri. So I gave a keynote address uh, about an introduction to the Aryan invasion theory. And if you see me there, I have a crew cut, you know, the military cut, very short hair, uh, haircut. So that was 2019. That's the last time I had a haircut. And after that, you have, you know, what happened, the pandemic happened and all. So, uh, so yeah, I just let it grow. And yeah, a week or so ago, I chopped off some of it. It was getting way too long. So I just did it myself. I took a pair of scissors and snip, done. Uh, <laughs> so that, that's it. There's no real reason. I, I, there have been times when I've kept my hair long and this is one of those times. There is no specific reason. There is no religious reason or ideological reason or scientific reason. It's just something that happened and I'm I'm good with that. I'm happy with that. No issues. <clears throat> All right. Let's see. Um, Mr. Gigachad of India, what are your views on those who say that you are funded by Modi? Me? <laughs> I wish, I wish. <laughs> uh, I wish I was funded by somebody. Please, if somebody wants to fund me, please fund me. But I will not change my views and my pronouncements. My views will always remain independent. If somebody were to fund me, I would invite that. But I will uh, not obviously change the way I talk, the, what I say. Yeah. So yeah, if people want to say that, feel free to say whatever you want. It's a free nation. It's a free country. You have uh, freedom of expression. Say whatever you want. Unfortunately, I'm not funded by anybody, which is sad. Sad life. Yeah. Sad. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Let us see other questions. Uh, Vaibhav Kalpesh says, "Your take? what's your take on the recent Indian defense deal signed for $250 million? Do you think it will be a revolution for the Indian economy? I believe India is uh, selling some military equipment uh, to, uh, Azerba- to, to Armenia, not to Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is the bad guy out here. Uh, they are the ones who are doing all kinds of terrible things against the Armenians. Azerbaijan is a proxy of Turkey. Yeah. So, yeah, India is uh, supporting Armenia in this matter. And India is sending $250 million worth of defense equipment uh, uh, yeah, to Armenia. So, uh, it's a good thing. Is this a revolution for the Indian economy? Not quite. $250 million is not a whole lot of money from, from a national perspective. For you or me, it's it's a whole lot of money. Yeah, But uh, from a national perspective, it's a small amount of money. But it's a good uh, it's a good sign. We are supporting the right nation. It's a geopolitical statement we're making. It's it's a statement of principle we're making. And obviously, it it, uh, tells the world that we are now a defense manufacturer. We, we, uh, our defense uh, equipment is is good. And there are buyers for that. So it's it's a good start. I would like to see India become a major defense exporter. Obviously, we don't want to fund wars and all that. When it comes to uh, 
turning defense into a major industry it's like the americans have done they they have been funding wars worldwide for the past century or so nearly so i don't I, i don't want that to happen but india should definitely become self sufficient entirely uh in defense and certain we can certainly uh help out uh like minded nations with their defense needs when this happens so it's a very good step it's not yet a revolution but eventually one could see uh major defense deals happening in the future maybe in a decade or so i it, sh- it should happen we should reach that that stage as soon as possible that's what i would say all right yeah I, <laughs> every session there has to be something about taking back pog right patience patience so uh pok pojk it's uh, gilgit baltistan and some parts of uh, of kashmir jammu and kashmir which are currently temporarily occupied by pakistan it's it's a temporary phase you know um uh is india waiting for a wrong move from pakistan to take back pok india is not currently looking at pok as far as i can as, as far as i can deduce um there are what needs to happen vis-a-vis pakistan is we don't want to take back pok without pakistan itself disintegrating so once again let me preface this by saying that i have no ill feeling for the innocent civilians of pakistan the men women and children they are the same people as us they have the same ancestry the same heritage the same history they are our blood they are our brothers and sisters i don't wish them anything bad but pakistan as a nation is a terrorist state no two ways about that pakistan is a terrorist nation the pakistan army is a terrorist organization and pakistan needs to be uh balkanized for peace to prevail in the entire subcontinent even the iranians will be happy with it the afghans will be happy with it and india needs this to happen for for us to have peace finally once and for all on the western border it will also ensure that other larger nations cannot use pakistan as a stick to beat pakistan to beat india and afghanistan and possibly even iran with right so pakistan is a, is is a temporary nation created out of convenience out of geopolitical interests of the anglo-saxon empire so for pok to be resolved essentially we need pakistan to uh, to a uh, break up into its constituent parts we would like to see a free balochistan we would like to see uh, a free sindh uh, a free pakistani pakistani punjab uh, we would like to see uh, khyber pakhtunwa and uh, northwest frontier province we would like to see that reintegrated with afghanistan because that's the uh, that's what the pashtun people desire um, right it's the major bone of contention between afghanistan and pakistan so that that should happen and when when the, these things happen it is but natural that uh, the temporarily occupied pojk will re- revert to india where it has always belonged for thousands of years um so yeah we need to work together for this to happen yeah what can we do we can contribute to the indian economy and and bolster the indian economy and as the economy grows the, the government will have more options and and more options on the table you know more tools at its disposal so yeah this needs to happen and i don't see pakistan lasting more than 10 years i once again let me say i have nothing against the people of pakistan i wish them well i wish them prosperity and happiness for them and their and the children and the future generations nothing against them and if this disintegration this balkanization happens it should happen hopefully peacefully without any without any any significant damage yeah that's what one hopes and um this is obviously also tied to the tibet issue because tibet obviously is also 
temporarily occupied by China. We would like to see Tibet free again. Yeah. So yeah, all these issues are interlinked and interrelated. Uh, so yes, India needs to keep this in mind as its long-term goals. And it will happen sooner or later. Hopefully sooner. All right. Divya says, why isn't India focusing on health and education? So we have the new education policy, which uh, does which uh, which does implement some reforms, some small reforms that don't really address the core issues of mental colonization of, of the colonial system remaining and all that. Like I said just a while ago, India is focusing on education to that extent, on, on, on reforming the education to a small extent. I think most kids, if not all kids, have access to education today. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to health, India, I think India has done reasonably well, actually. When it comes to health, India has been able to uh, get over the, the uh, coronavirus crisis. Yeah. India has done way better than other nations in, in, in the speed of implementation of the vaccination. We developed our own vaccines. We vaccinated uh, most all, all eligible adults with two doses of the, of the vaccine. We did that very efficiently. The West was waiting for millions of Indians to die and they were so disappointed when nothing of that sort happened, right? Uh, all the stories they were putting out in the media of the, the coronavirus pandemic actually being much worse than what it looks like in India and millions of Indians will die. All of those stories have been quietly set aside and pushed under the carpet, brushed under the carpet now because none of that happened. That is incredible. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's an incredibly excellent performance by the government. And when it comes to other health issues, India is still, you know, a very, uh, it's, India is still a developing nation. Uh, and uh, we obviously have the health benefits that people get, the Pradhan Mantri uh, something or the other Yojana or whatever, I don't remember the name, I I apologize for the not remembering the name, but I think everybody gets, gets uh, health insurance coverage at a very nominal cost. So the intention is there, yes, and as India gets more prosperous, as the economy gets better, I expect that the quality of healthcare will also improve. I have said this not in a long time, but I have said this in the past, that eventually any civilized society should give completely free education and completely free, free health care to its citizens. That's how it was in ancient India. Education was 100% free. It was entirely subsidized by the state, by the kings and queens and the emperors, whoever, whoever it was. And so was health care. Even after 1947, for some time in some so-called princely states, Healthcare was still given to citizens for free. That's no longer the case. Healthcare has now been turned into an industry. When you turn something into an industry, they will want to maximize the amount of money they can extract out of each patient. And that's why we have all these problems today. So yeah, these things need to be taken care of. But we unfortunately will not be able to do this for the next 10, 20 years. It will be slow progress. But I do think that the government of India is indeed focusing on health and education. Once the economy rises, there will be more money to invest in these things and hopefully things will change for the better. I think things are already improving to a certain extent. And the coronavirus virus pandemic, the way the government dealt with that was better than 99% of the world. Better than what the Americans did. Way better than what the Chinese did. And way better than what Europe did. So I think India was a shining light in the entire world when it comes, when it comes to handling the coronavirus pandemic, that horrible crisis that lasted two years. And India not only did uh, 
take care of its own citizens and in india gave uh, the ones who had lost their jobs and all various benefits you know food grains at a very discounted price and, and all that they did everything they could the government india also tried to support as many other nations as possible by by sending vaccines no other nation has shown this sort of leadership so let us uh, not forget these things i think uh, we have a very capable government and a very capable prime minister uh, with us right now we are very fortunate to have this very often what happens is that you don't realize what you have until after until after it's gone so i for one do i'm very grateful that we have a very capable government and a very capable prime minister and uh, yeah we are focusing on these things maybe not maybe not to the extent that we all would like we would all like uh, the healthcare system to be like the way it is in, in the us or canada or whatever actually the us healthcare system is terrible it's extremely extremely uh, uh, expensive yeah anyway so yeah that's where we are today um <clears throat> all right let's see what other questions we have i said the us has sent vaccines as well and we have refused those vaccines because those are mrna vaccines we have no idea what 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 is the deal with that and and initially they refused to send india raw materials for ma- making indian vaccines they said america first that's what mr biden said and that was a very good thing it it could have been a it could have been a disaster for india because the americans were refusing to send india the raw materials for making vaccines for making various uh, pet equipments and all that it was actually a boon in disguise today india is able to manufacture all of these things on its own so the americans use everything as leverage so they must have sent vaccines here or there those vaccines are very dodgy vaccines i don't trust those vaccines the pfizer vaccine and all that. and now all the truth is coming out you know the side effects and all the complications and what not i'll not go into that yeah but we know what what the what what happened as a consequence of the, of the of those vaccines the most efficacious and efficient vaccine in the whole world when it comes to the, the coronavirus is the indian vaccine and none of the western journalists and observers want to speak about this but the data is out there the chinese vaccine sinovac is terrible less than 33% efficiency maybe less than 12% efficiency well, I, if i am not mistaken uh the the moderna vaccine and the pfizer vaccine good god the pfizer is the worst of the lot even worse than sinovac so yeah we don't need i mean they may have sent vaccines to certain nations they wanted india to to give approval to their vaccines india refused to do that and i'm so glad we did that right <clears throat> yes messenger rna and all that So yeah so what bobby said is indeed true that the americans did send vaccines to some people but those vaccines i'm so glad india did not accept them and india did not in india refused to uh, certify those vac- vaccines all right um okay what else do we have um let us see Samath says do you think scientific progress can happen without wars if no any reason behind that see scientific progress does happen because of the technologies we need to uh, create for warfare a lot of scientific uh, development happens because of that for instance in the 20th century uh, the nuclear race was there that very rapidly developed all kinds of nuclear technologies which have uh, civilian applications as well nuclear power if you look at france more than 30% of their electricity is generated from nuclear power so yeah but they first the americans first designed the very first nuclear reactor for making a bomb 
So that that's a very good example. And then once again, you had the space race. The Russians took the lead. The Americans wanted to catch up. The Americans were terrified the Russians would put nukes in space on satellites and so on. So this actually had a military dimension. The, the entire reason why the space race happened was that they were worried about the militarization of these technologies. And these technologies have very clear military dimensions. These are primarily military technologies. And yet today we have satellites, we have communication satellites without which this telecast would not happen and so on. So a lot of scientific progress happens because of the technologies that one has to develop for military purposes. That is indeed true. We humans are a warlike, violent, aggressive species. That's what we are. And so in, it is also the case with our closest relatives, the chimpanzees. These are also very violent, just like us. That's just the way we are. We are inherently a violent species. The entire history of humanity is essentially a history of wars. It's the history of various great leaders, powerful leaders, good or bad, doesn't matter, powerful leaders, and the wars they waged. And all historical change has mainly happened through wars. Mainly. Mainly. So, yeah, and that obviously has driven a whole lot of scientific progress. One would like to see scientific progress without war. And one did see such such phases of human history, especially in India. We have the entire uh, Saraswati Sindhu phase of Indian history which seems to have had no war whatsoever. We have, archaeologists have looked very assiduously, very hard for, for evidence of warfare. They found none whatsoever. Yeah. So we had this ut almost utopian phase of history in which you have like two, three thousand years of history where you don't find any evidence of warfare, of battles, of, of any such thing. And there was a whole lot of scientific and technological progress in that in that in that time. So ancient India during the Saraswati Sindhu phase was the most scientifically and technologically advanced civilization of all time, right? Uh, and we see that in the archaeological record. There was dentistry seven eight thousand years before today. The the ports and the harbors of that time they compare favorably to ports and harbors in modern India, where aircraft carriers dock. Right, and obviously you had, uh, and a and a whole lot more, which I've spoken about so many times. So that was a phase of human history where you had a huge amount of scientific progress, technological progress, without warfare. I mean, as far as we know, there was no warfare. We know that Indians did have uh, military strength at the time, and there is an instance of Indian involvement in a foreign war during the Saraswati Sindhu time, which was the war between uh, Rimush of Akkad, the Akkadian Empire, and our neighbors, the Marhashi Kingdom, which is present-day Iran, southern Iran. So India sent troops to the aid of the Marhashi Kingdom in their conflict with the Akkadian Empire. So that is something that is part of the historical record. So even though our civilization was entirely peaceful, there is no evidence of war, but we did have military strength and we did participate in geopolitics beyond the Indian subcontinent. So yeah, that's how it is. I think progress, uh, technological progress, scientific progress, essentially uh, much of it is driven by military requirements and needs and exigencies. And that's just how it is. But one can certainly have progress without wars, but typically not. that's not happened. I don't know what the name is. <laughs> what is your book collection? I have a whole lot of books, my dear friends. Um, I've got two bookshelves here and I have a whole lot more. I have way too many books than, than most people could handle. I have read more books than I have bought and I have 
and I buy more books than I can possibly read. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you believe humans are the future aliens completely evolved? There is no such thing as completely evolved. No matter what stage of evolution you are in right now, you're going to always keep on evolving in the future. So in another 100,000 years, if you still, if you last that long, you will have a whole different kind of evolution, possibly based on what uh, what situations and circumstances your species encounters, right? So if humanity in the future becomes a space-faring species, then we could evolve differently over maybe a period of half a million years, 200, 300, 400, 500,000 years, yeah? So evolution never stops. There is no such thing as completely evolved and this is perfect. That's not the case ever. Evolution is a constant constant process. As long as a species exists, it keeps evolving. The evolution doesn't happen week upon week. It happens millennium. It doesn't even happen over periods of thousands of years. Evolution is visible only over periods of hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, if humanity becomes a space-faring species, we could be future aliens like when we think of aliens we think of these beings that uh, travel across interstellar space yeah so in the future humanity could be one of those species that travels across interstellar space and uh, settles down in planets or star systems beyond our own but we will never be completely evolved evolution is a constant process it never stops okay mm. Let's see other questions. Um, what do we have? Vis visual sparseness. It's the first time in my entire life that I've come across this term. Visual, vis visual sparseness. What's that? Sparseness means uh, frugality, moderation, less than moderation, visual. I'm sorry. Not quite sure what this is, sir. Not quite sure. Uh, Yash says, did you ever have a mental breakdown? Unfortunately, no. I mean, unfortunately, no. I've never had one of those. Yeah. Never had one of those. Thankfully. Yes. Uh, Green Snake says, contribution of Rajputs and Sikhism. I think when it comes to the, the, the Sikh people, most of, most of them, not all, obviously, but most of them are either Jats or Rajputs, right? Uh, Sikhism emerged as as opposition to foreign oppression and colonization, typically mostly by the Turks, entirely by the Turks. It uh, Sikhism, the, the Sikhi, not Sikhism, Sikhi, uh, the Sikh religion, Sikh Panth, Sikhi emerged as, as a means of opposing and fighting back against Turkic brutality and oppression and occupation and colonization of India. Right? And uh, obviously it was a martial way of life a militaristic way of life. And I think many of the original Sikhs were Rajputs. So when, when we speak about a person who is Sikh, it's not an ethnicity or a race, right? It, anybody can be a Sikh. Even, even a European can become a Sikh or whatever. So uh, many of the original Sikhs and many of the present-day Sikhs are also of, of Rajput origin, right? So that's what I can say about this. <clears throat> Okay. La Rochelle says, can you tell us why you, the US is not joining the Ukraine war? When you can get somebody else to fight and die for you, why would you get involved? Why would you do that? Why would you send your own people to fight and die? When you can send somebody else to do it for you. So that's what we call a proxy war. Right? 
when you had the pakistanis uh, funding terrorism in india they were not sending their own soldiers so there was plausible deniability that we are not involved in this it's this is just some terrorists some freedom fighters so called freedom fighters who are doing this it's your internal law and order issue right so the pakistanis could have this plausible deniability and we all know who was funding the pakistanis financing the pakistanis it was the americans so it was a two you know a proxy war at two levels the pakistanis were using terrorists as proxies and the americans were using pakistan as a proxy to to bleed india so when you can do when you have such a wonderful convenient arrangement why would you send your own people to die, to to fight and die so the americans want to technically stay out of the war so they are using ukraine to fight russia and they will fight this war until the last ukrainian can fight <laughs> so yeah that's the reason why plausible deniability and you can get your whatever you want done without losing any of your own people or your own equipment and and you have plausible deniability right nagarjuna nagarjuna says isro lost contact with mangalyan is it true i believe mangalyan has finally run out of fuel uh, of energy the battery or whatever i'm not sure i heard about this so this mission was designed to to last 6 months the when was the mission launched mangalyan 2014 2015 i think 2014 perhaps let me quickly check mangalyan m a n g a l y a a n mangalyan so yes it was launched in it it started orbiting the planet mars in september 2014 uh, let me just put this on the screen what on earth not this one second sorry about that let me put the google search on the screen the bare basic facts So uh, this was orbiting Mars since twenty four September twenty fourteen, and uh, yeah. So what happened is that it's it's finally run out of uh, energy. Its batteries must have died out or whatever. So it was designed to last for six months, but it lasted more than eight years. It's an incredible achievement, and that too on a shoestring budget. So yeah, I think it has finally lost contact with the satellite, and that's just how things go. eventually all satellites run out of uh, uh battery power energy whatever it is and one loses contact with them so yeah we would like to see more such missions in the future right uh we have a chandrayaan coming up soon and then we have a human space flight program that india is going to be launching i think in the next within the next couple of years uh, we will launch actual indian astronauts into space that's going to happen soon so very excited for that i think there is a shukriyan to a mission uh, a mission to a spacecraft that will be sent in orbit around venus i believe so interesting science coming up there is the aditya thing also which is a solar observatory that india is going to be launching into space so pretty interesting uh, missions coming up in the future so yeah mangalyan is obviously something that that was going to lie, last only a specific amount of time it exceeded those expectations by a huge amount which is a great uh, performance and and a great result for us <clears throat> barney says regarding tibet i heard that the chinese communist party are planting han chinese in tibet to change demography if so many years are passed will tibet really want freedom this is something they have been doing since the very beginning since the 1950s they have been changing the demographics of tibet today i believe there are more han chinese in tibet than actual tibetans 
They have completely changed the demography of Tibet. This is something they have done on purpose, deliberately, so that uh, the aspirations of the Tibetan people will be destroyed forever. So if so many years have elapsed, will Tibet still really want freedom? It still wants freedom. The land belongs to the Tibetan people, to the indigenous people, not to the Han Chinese. So whenever Tibet is liberated, the Han Chinese will have to leave the place. And yeah, that's, that's uh, I mean, that's what the, one will have to respect the will and the opinion of the Tibetan people. They are the ones who should decide what happens in their own land. And most likely, I mean, it, it would only be fair and just for the people who have been planted over them to be sent back to their homeland, which is which is China. Right. So yeah, if if uh, if you have so many Chinese there, it really complicates matters, and that is precisely why they've been sent there. When it comes to Pakistan occupied Jammu and Kashmir, they have been changing the, the Pakistanis have been changing the demographics over there also. They have been uh, they have been um, settling non-Kashmiris in the place for a very long time to ensure that the Kashmiri people will not have a say in what happens in their own homeland. That's what the Pakistanis have been doing. So this is something that uh, people, that various uh, uh, authoritarian regimes do in order to crush the aspirations of, of various peoples. So eventually one hopes that uh, whether it is Pakistan occupied Jammu and Kashmir or whether it's Tibet, they, these places and the, the people of these places will see true justice. And most of it, much of it will, will depend on what India does in the next, in the coming years. All right, let's see something else. What if all the Central Asian countries reunite and form a union like the EU? Well, um, what, what, what purpose will it serve? All the Central Asian nations. See, what are the Central Asian nations? Uh, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, and so on and so forth. Uh, we also have uh, Chinese-occupied Xinjiang, which is East Turkestan. That's what some people call it. Uh, these nations are all overall, you could say, Turkic in culture. But ethnically, they, they, they have differences. The Kyrgyz people are not the same as the Uzbek people. And the Uzbek people are not the same as the, as the Turkmen people. So once again, let's take a look at the uh, map and understand what region we are referring to. So let's take a look at the globe. We are talking about Central Asia. So we typically talk about the erstwhile re the, the region that was, uh, that was in the past called Uttar Madra. Uttar Kuru was the the eastern part of Central Asia, present-day, temporarily Chinese-occupied Xinjiang. And Uttar Madhra was this entire region over here, which is north of Gandhar, which essentially is Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan. And uh, you could also perhaps include Azerbaijan in that, most likely not, even though Azerbaijan is indeed Turkic. When it comes to Tajikistan, Tajikistan is not a Turkic land. It's not a Turkic country. The Tajiks are essentially uh, an Iranian, Indo-Iranian people. And there are, uh, there is a, a small Tajik, uh, a certain, not small, but a small, a moderate Tajik minority in Afghanistan as well, in northern Afghanistan. So these nations, I don't see any reason why they would, would want to unite and form a e union like the EU. The EU is a union that has been formed by the Americans to serve American geopolitical interests, right? 
So uh, there's no real reason for these Central Asian countries to unite. And I'm not sure what purpose it would serve them all. Yeah. So it's something that will most likely not happen. Right. Okay. Um, Tarun Khatri says, your views on Adipurush. I assume you're referring to the movie that is going to be released sometime in the future. If that's what you're referring to, I I did indeed, unfortunately, watch the trailer. And it was... <laughs> it was ghastly. Absolutely ghastly. And, and lots of people have remarked about this. Uh, one of these actors, he plays the role of Ravan. Who's the, what's his name? One of the Khans. He doesn't look like Ravan, he looks like somebody was saying like a Turkic invader of India. Yeah, it looks like that. No, Saif, Saif Ali Khan, right? Uh, the son of the cricketer. Uh, so yeah, Saif Ali Khan, he looks like a Turkic invader. He doesn't look like Ravan. And there is a scene in which he's, he's sitting on a bat, a giant vampire bat and flying around. So it's, it's something, I don't know what weird inspiration they've got from what places. Some of it seems to be inspired from the story of Dracula. Some of it seems to be inspired from the Lord of the Rings. Some of it seems to be inspired from the Game of Thrones. It's just it's a mishmash of of things that are they don't that don't belong together. And then the the Vanaras are portrayed as monkeys, and the the, the they are portrayed the way the monkeys were portrayed in the Planet of the Apes movie series. You know, so yeah, they've simply blindly aped and copied various disparate sources that they have been inspired from and i'm not sure it's going if 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 it's going to be true to the story of of, of shri ram uh, the person who plays lord ram he's a very buff guy I, I don't remember the name of the actor but he looks angry in every scene he looks angry and furious in every scene lord ram was not an angry man he 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 <laughs> Lord Ram was an equanimous person. He was a calm person. He he fought a righteous war, but he was not an angry man. It's wrong to portray him as an angry person, as a guy who's constantly angry. But that's the kind of uh, feeling I got from seeing the trailer, a brief trailer, that Lord Ram is portrayed as an angry person. So, um, in, a, in a way, it's good that Bollywood is now being forced against its will to... Uh, to make movies about Indian history and uh, Indian Indian cultural and religious themes, in a way, it's good. But they are doing a terrible job job of do, of it. So, yeah, that that's the that's the conundrum that we are facing. I think it is movie. It is the film industry further down south in the southern parts of India, whether it's the Telugu industry or the, or the various other industries. They are doing a far better job thus far in in in. Uh, in uh, respecting and portraying Indian culture and history. So, uh, yeah, that's the impression I got about this movie, Adipurush. Uh, it looked like a terribly made movie. Or maybe they make they could make some improvements. I don't know. A lot of it is CGI. And uh, it's not something that makes me want to watch it. Yeah, so that's my views on based on the little that I've seen thus far. Uh, <clears throat> okay. Uh, I think that's the question I just answered. Okay, Shaheen says, in the upcoming two years, will China attack India? What will our government do in that case to combat Chinese influence? So the Chinese could indeed be tempted to, to possibly 
attack India. So why in the next two years? That's the question, right? So it's a very strange situation that we are in. Whether it is China, whether it's Pakistan, or whether it's the US. When it comes to India, they have the same views and same opinion. They don't want India to rise. And they don't want this government, the government of Mr. Modi, to stay in power. They would all, whether it's China, Pakistan, or the US, all three of them would like to see a much weaker government come to power. They would like to see Mr. Modi lose the 2024 election. And one of the ways of achieving such an objective is to inflict a military defeat on India, which the people of India, you all, would see as a humiliation and a failure of the government. Right? And then the government would lose the next election and great victory for the Chinese and the Americans and the Pakistanis. So, because of that, the Chinese could indeed be tempted to indulge in some kind of ridiculously stupid military misadventure with India, possibly in the Siliguri region, possibly somewhere else, you know, try to quickly grab some territory and hold on to it, and thus uh, inflict a defeat and a humiliation on India. That could be the temptation. That is something that Mr. Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping would have at the back of his mind, you know, he would be biding his time and looking for a good opportunity for, to do that. The problem is that India is now rising. India's economy is getting stronger. India is uh, strengthening its military infrastructure, its border infrastructure. Uh, overall, India is looking up. So I'm not sure if they will be able to find a good time to do that. The problem is that if they cross India's red lines, it could in invite very serious retaliation from India. You know, Because when it comes to Chinese positions in Tibet, let's, let's take a look at the map. So China occupies Tibet temporarily right now. For now, they do it. And they have a variety of military bases, infrastructure and air force bases in Tibet. They have built lots of roads. They have, uh, you know, all kinds of military installations in this region, especially in the border areas around India. The problem for the Chinese is that their aircraft, if they, if they take off from such a high altitude, they will be able to carry less fuel and less weaponry. And just a few hundred kilometers away, if Indian aircraft take off from the Arunachal Pradesh region or wherever else, Assam region or whatever, we are taking off essentially from much lower, close, close, much closer to sea level than anywhere in Tibet. So Indian aircraft can carry much more, a much larger load of weapons and fuel. So that's an advantage India has over there. And of course, all the Chinese positions, military positions are very thoroughly exposed in this region because there are no forests here. There's nowhere to hide. The only place to hide is between is in between the very various crags and the valleys in the mountains. And yet India has satellites that, that keep an eye on everything the Chinese are doing. And India has missiles that can actually, you know, that can go up a mountain and then go down a mountain at a 70 degree angle. The 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 Brahmos missile. So that's the kind of advantage India has. That's the kind of missile that India has that the Chinese don't have. So it's a, it's quite possible for India to take out a significant portion of the, of the Chinese military infrastructure in a, in a series of very rapid missile strikes. Yeah. So I'm not sure if it makes sense for the, for the Chinese to indulge in a military misadventure with India. And when it comes to mountain warfare, technology doesn't play that much of a role as compared to, to actual human uh, capital and quality, you know. In mountain warfare, the, the quality of your soldiers often is more important than the kind of ammunition, the, the kind of technology they're using. Of course, technology is also important. 
but when it comes to hand to hand combat and all the chinese aren't quite so good you know you, you may have seen certain reports and certain videos of chinese trying to fight indians and all their kung fu and all it is of no use when they are fighting indians and the chinese soldiers are not quite as large and strong as indian soldiers on average so and of course if the chinese actually succeed in biting a piece of indian territory i am sure this government will not take that lying down and it could invite a very massive and very heavy retaliation maybe even non conventional retaliation and that is something the chinese simply don't want nobody wants to go there so i think they would be tempted to do this but i don't think it makes any sense for a sane rational chinese leader to indulge in a in a misadventure with india but india always has to keep this in mind that the chinese would want to do, to do this yeah so we have to be eternally vigilant semper vigilans like they say in latin and never ever underestimate the enemy and never let your guard down um, <clears throat> right where else are we and what else do we have Harsh says, "Did you watch Pony and Selvan the first? The movies on the Cholas yet? The movie on the Cholas yet? How did you like it? I haven't watched it. I've been traveling the past week. The next week again, I'm traveling a whole lot, so I don't know when I'll watch it. I do want to watch it. I do want to watch it. I hear good things about it, so I haven't seen it. But uh, I think when it comes to just five years ago, nobody knew about the Cholas, and I think I was one of the first people to start tweeting about the Cholas." in 2016 2017 you know and now i am so glad that almost all indians know about the greatness of the chola empire the chola dynasty and uh, i hope the movie is good i hope that it it portrays the history accurately and i would certainly like to see it whenever i get the opportunity hopefully on the large screen on the big screen not on a tv no matter how big your tv is it's not it's never the same as watching it in a in a theater so i certainly want to see it let me see when i can get the opportunity and i hope the movie doesn't go off the screens soon because the next couple of weeks i'm traveling a lot and i'm really busy but yeah i would like to see it for sure <clears throat> rajat says ps1 is a great movie well i'm so glad to hear that i'm so glad to hear that i certainly look forward to watching it okay Animish says did indian vessels and satellites pound the chinese spy vessel that was docked at hambantota port in sri lanka eventually forcing it to retreat and go back without it, without fulfilling its purpose uh no as far as i know there was no military action of any kind when we talk about pounding something i'm i'm when you say pound it 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 means kinetic action which means you pounding it with missiles or artillery or shells or, or whatever so yeah no such action was taken that would obviously be military action that would invite some kind of retaliation from china uh india and china have an unstated agreement of some kind that we don't take we don't fire at each other right even that uh, galwan incident which happened which was like brutal hand to hand combat was uh, in which uh, maybe i don't know how many chinese died 70 80 100 chinese died 20 indians unfortunately died at the hands of those barbarians so that incident too was done without firing a single shot it was two groups of men fighting each other with their bare hands and with clubs and sticks and all that so india and china have this unstated or 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 unwritten agreement that we will not fire 
at each other. So it doesn't make any sense for India to... I mean, some people were saying in the past that why didn't India quietly sink that ship? I mean, are you people kidding me? <laughs> Those of you who say that, uh, <laughs> that's not how the world works. You do that, you're going to have retaliation. Then that, that could escalate to any to, to any extent. So India did not do any such thing. Indian vessels... If you pound the Chinese spy vessel, it will be destroyed. Right? If you pound it with missiles or with uh, shells, artillery, whatever it is, that vessel will be destroyed. Then how will it go back? And uh, as far as I know, we don't have any satellites that are capable of uh, firing at targets on on the surface of the planet. Yeah, There are various concepts of satellite-based weapons. You could place nukes on satellites. You could place missiles possibly on satellites. And you could have kinetic weapons on satellites, you know, non-explosive weapons, uh, the rods from gods, from, from God, you know, just rods that travel at maybe you know, 50, 20, 30 kilometers per second, even if it travels at 10 kilometers per second, or even a kilometer per second, just the impact of a single rod can destroy a target, like take it out completely. So, so various such concepts do exist. They are certainly feasible. The designs, I'm not sure if any country has implemented that. I'm sure many countries have implemented various such, uh, deployed certain such weapons, but they have never been revealed to the public. So I'm not sure if India is one of the nations that has satellite-based weapons. But as far as we know, India has not taken any such action against the Chinese vessel. Hirsch says, overwhelming it with false signals to fill its data banks. So, pounding in that manner, we don't know. If we have done it, we have not spoken about it. And the Chinese have also not said anything about it. So, yeah, this is this is called electronic warfare, electronic countermeasures and all that, yeah. So, that is something I'm sure India is capable of doing. If we have done it, we have not advertised it. A lot of warfare is based on de deception. All warfare actually is based on deception. And when you score a victory of any kind, oftentimes you don't want to advertise it because that would lead to a public escalation. So even if India has done this, India has not advertised it. So we don't know what happened. The, the Chinese vessel eventually did go away, wherever it is now. So we don't know what steps were taken by India. I am sure certain steps would have been taken, but yeah, we don't know. All right. <clears throat> India, when she crosses $10 trillion of GDP, is it possible for her to have vassal states? It's possible. If India so desires, I'm sure India could do that in the future. It's, a, it's certainly possible. Jay Dikshit says, have you watched the Kashmir files? I regret to say I still haven't watched it. I never found the time. And perhaps it's a good thing I did not watch it because I I, I hear it's a very uh, it's a very brutal movie which depicts what really happened. But yeah, it's it's not pleasant to watch. So I haven't watched it, but I'm aware of what the story is about. Yeah. <clears throat> Let us see some other questions. Uh, Hi five Ripon says, can it? speak about the Richard structure in Mauritania and its formation. There are many mysteries surrounding it. Okay, let's take a look at the Richard structure in Mauritania. So where is Mauritania? It is in Afrique. It's in, it's in Western Africa. All right. This is the nation of Mauritania. Let's find the Richard structure. It is a concentric uh, series of things or whatever. 
let's see where is the Richard structure I'm not sure if I can locate it over here let's search for it all right and it's gonna zoom in there you go there we are let's see what it looks like it's called the eye of the Sahara and they say there's Atlantis here who who decides this <laughs> I have no idea who decides this and I don't know why why it says Atlantis and if I hover my mouse over here I see John Travolta from Pulp Fiction what on earth is that okay let's zoom further in unfortunately I don't see much here okay let's zoom out and see if we can find something ah there you are there you are. So this is a weird structure that looks like an impact crater, but it may most likely not be an impact crater. And I'm not quite sure what the history and the mystery is about. There is something else similar to it over here, smaller thing. Yeah. So uh, I'm not sure how this was formed. It is most likely a naturally uh, formed structure. I have obviously heard stories by various people claiming that there are aliens here, or maybe this is Atlantis, because if you read the story of Atlantis by, I don't know, was it Plato? Uh, it said that Atlantis was was constructed in a concentric circle kind of architectural thing. And uh, so this does look like that. But as far as I know, they have not found any evidence of ancient human habitation over here. So yeah, uh, there are various theories and stories about this. Some people claim that this was constructed by an ancient human civilization. Some people will obviously claim that aliens are involved. Um, there was a guy, I believe he came on Joe Rogan's podcast and he spoke about this. I haven't seen it, but I heard that there was some discussion of this, ma of this matter, of this structure. So yeah, I'm not quite sure how it was formed. I've never really investigated it. It's an interesting structure. As you can see, it's, uh, it's very interesting, the, the architecture, right? Uh, not the architecture, the, the morphology of the structure. Most likely it is a natural structure. But yeah, interesting. And I'm not sure what kind of uh, composition the rocks have over here. Uh, the minerals, the mineral composition and all that. So it's interesting, it's mysterious and I don't quite know about it, a lot about it. But yeah, maybe I will investigate in the future what it is all about. <clears throat> all right. Um, okay. Ankiristo says, where is the next episode of the Indian interest? Are you planning to make different types of content that you can currently do in the near future? Uh, thank you, sir. Uh, yeah, it's something that I should indeed revive. I was doing this weekly geopolitics podcast in which I was not taking questions. I was just talking about things that I found that, that were of relevance for that week. So yeah, maybe I will restart that because we are living in very interesting times and a lot of geopolitical action happening right now. So yeah, I will certainly, I do plan to revive it and uh, hopefully in a week or two, maybe in, maybe in a couple of weeks one could have the next episode of that. Yeah. And other type of content than I currently do. Um, I had intended to make documentary style videos, but that obviously takes a lot of time. So once I get a proper team in place to do all the, all the non-creative work or the editing and all that, then I would certainly want to do much more and expand into other kinds of content like documentary style videos, maybe in-person podcasts, all that. Let's see how it goes. I would certainly like to do much more of that. Yes. All right. Uh, let us see. Mm, what else do we have? Mm -hmm. uh, Rahul says, your vlogs. Um, maybe, maybe vlogs too, perhaps. You know, the vlogs are interesting. 
vlogs are typically interesting when you're traveling and you're uh, experiencing different things and those experiences those interactions that's what makes vlog inter- vlogs interesting one of the most famous vloggers of all time is uh, the american guy casey neistat his vlogs were so interesting because each vlog had a certain story uh, it had a three act structure and there were multiple characters multiple locations a lot of traveling and all that so that's what makes vlogs interesting compelling that's what hooks the audience if it's just me sitting here and talking about various things then it's it's not very much different from what i'm already doing so uh if i do travel and you know what it's not easy to make vlogs especially if you are the only person filming you got to hold a camera in front of you and while traveling it's it's really it's really difficult to do that so maybe i will do vlogs in the future possibly if i can uh figure out a way of doing it sustainably possibly perhaps that's not what the f- uh, channel is obviously focused on but yeah i have a vlog channel which uh I have a, a vlog channel which I have not updated for updated for many months. Uh the only vlogs I've done on the channel are my documentation or are me documenting my water fasts. So yeah, I I have this I once in a while I do a water fast which is a very dangerous thing to do but I do that. So that's typically what I document in those vlogs, not more than that. Maybe something else I'll do in the future. Let's see. <clears throat> All right, let's see what else other questions um Vanos Spot says, according to you, which leader has been by far the best for India, except Shri Shri Nehruji? <laughs> uh, okay. Look, uh, um, so there have been multiple leaders, as we know. Uh, we have had the great, magnificent Shri Nehruji, who obviously, I mean, he's the greatest of all time. No, no, no question about it. So if we put Mr. Nehruji aside because he's too great for anybody else, then we had uh, Mr. Shastri, Mr. Lal Bahadur Shastri. Then we had uh, Mrs. Gandhi, who was in power for a long time. Then you had uh, then you had Mr. Desai, Mr. Moraji Desai, who was in power for a brief period of time. Then we had uh, Mr. Rajiv Gandhi. Then we had uh, two or three very short tenured prime ministers, Mr. H D Devgoda, Mr. Uh, I K Gujral, and Mr. Chandrasekhar. then we had mr vajpayee then we had the another magnificent person the great mr Do- the great dr manmohan singh the, the, we had obviously mr pv narsimha rao and after mr manmohan singh it is it has been mr modi so we have had all these various people i think one of the most consequential uh, prime ministers was mrs gandhi she uh, shaped india's uh, well the way india progressed to a great extent she uh, did bifurcate pakistan she it was under her uh, tenure as prime minister that uh, bangladesh was liberated from pakistan which is a great thing uh, and various other things as well certain problematic things also happened during her, her tenure as as history uh, tells us and uh, yeah so we've had a variety of prime ministers mr pv narsimha rao was one of the uh, people who most most observers neglect he did uh, he lasted his his tenure lasted 5 years he is the one who opened up india's economy we were forced to do that because uh, the indian economy was almost uh, bankrupt india had almost gone bankrupt india's foreign exchange reserves were enough for 2 or 3 days only so india because of mismanagement by by previous uh, prime ministers and regimes had been become almost completely bankrupt so india was forced to open up its economy on the terms of the west 
and that's where things start going bad for india infiltration by western uh actors and all that but overall mr narsimha rao was i think a good prime minister so i am not sure who has been the best thus far i will not talk about the present prime minister and i will not talk about mr nehru apart from the others they all had certain strengths they all had certain weaknesses they all did something good i i suppose all of them most of them would have done something good for the nation some did more good than the others some did more bad than the others so uh so yeah it's i think it's up, up to you all to decide who you think was good for india or the best for for india uh obviously mr nehru nobody can come anywhere close to him he was that magnificent and it is too early for us to say anything about mr modi uh once somebody's once a certain prime minister's tenure is over we can look back uh, and and uh, examine with the benefit of hindsight how the tenure has been so while somebody is serving it is uh, from i i i feel that it is best not to pass any judgment at that time right but i think mr modi is is doing a brilliant job yeah all right <clears throat> oh oh the man himself is here sir 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 obviously so no i don't blame you sir <laughs> mr nehru you are the most magnificent of them all all right let us see what other questions we have <clears throat> uh hindu share putin says will africa ever be free from foreign occupation and neo colonization uh africa has a tragic history the past 4 3 400 500 years tragic history the europeans have destroyed africa entirely entirely today they pretend like they are they are out of africa they're not they are still actively destroying africa various european nations i will not take names because some of them are on our side for some in some in some ways so let's not go there but yeah i would like to see africa free from colonization africa's culture has been destroyed africa's indigenous religions have been wiped out africa had its own system various african kingdoms and regions had their own systems of governance they had their own beautiful culture everything has been destroyed completely the people of africa have been reduced to to destitution they have been stripped stripped of all dignity that's what poverty does to people you may be the most advanced culture in the world the most advanced civilization in the world but if you become destitute if you are in poverty you are stripped of your dignity that's what happens so that's what the europeans have done to africa over and obviously there's been horrific genocides in africa so and today you have neo colonization from various european actors and even why the chinese yeah the chinese are are up to their old games in africa the debt trap diplomacy and and various western nations prop up various african dictators you know who's the favorite dictator of the west it's the person who is uh, ruling rwanda right now rwanda is a nation in africa there was a there was a terrible genocide that happened in rwanda about 20 or so years before today uh, let's put the map on and the civil war in rwanda the genocide that happened there the hutu versus tutsi issue it was all uh instigated by the catholic church right this small nation here so for the past 20 or so years the, the rwanda has had a person who has ruled the nation rwanda president let me google that okay paul kagame there's a person called paul kagame who is the president so called president 
of Rwanda. Let's put this gentleman on the screen. So he has been the president of Rwanda since 2000. Now, if whenever an African president or leader lasts that long, it is only because that person is in the good, good books of the West. And we speak when we speak about the West, we know who we are speaking about. So this person is providing various services to the West in exchange for which that person is allowed to stay in power. So this gentleman, Mr. Paul Kagame, he is called uh, the West's favorite dictator. He has been in power for, <clears throat> for 22 years. Can you believe it? 22 years. So that's what the West does in Africa. They, they put puppets in power. People who are essentially dictators, nothing else, nothing, nothing but dictators. And they're allowed to stay in power as long as they allow the West to plunder and pillage and pilfer the country for resources and extract everything of value out of there. So there are various African nations that are extremely rich in mineral wealth, in gold, and yet the people are incredibly poor. These nations have no gold reserves, but the gold goes somewhere. So that's what's being being done, being done even today to Africa. <coughs> So will Africa ever be free from foreign occupation and neo-colonization? I hope so. I hope so. This will happen when there is a new uh, new way, new world order, which is not uh, ruled by the West. Yeah, For that, India will have to rise. It's, it's still a long way away. And that's what the West doesn't want to happen. They don't want India to rise. They want to keep on plundering and... And uh, doing that, plundering the world and exploiting the poor people of the world and the poor nations of the world, which they have impoverished. So that's how it is. You know, and the world is not as nice a place as, as we think it is. Uh -huh. India was the sixth largest economy in 1947, now fifth. Really? As far as I know, India's GDP, India's share of the world's GDP had dropped to below 2% in 1947. Was it the sixth largest economy in 1947? I don't think so. I don't think so. <clears throat> All right. Uh, what else? Shaheen says, do you agree that the Chanakya Niti Shastra should be taught in our schools? Um... When it comes to schools, I think the Chanakya Niti and the Chanakya uh, philosophy uh, is a little advanced for that, you know, for the school level. It's something that should be taught in, in maybe in political science, uh, maybe at the college and university level, not at the school and high school level. But yes, if some students are interested, they can certainly acquire the books for themselves. I have the Arthashastra somewhere here. I believe this is the one, if I'm not mistaken. So I have the Arthashastra. If, if you're interested, you can study it on your own. But I think that for most students, uh, studying it at the school level would be uh, would be too uh, too too much to ask for. It would be too advanced. It's certainly something you can study at the college level and certainly at the university level. I think all diplomats should be uh, required to study this. And... Uh, yeah, it's it's something that's certainly very useful in diplomacy in in geopolitics. Yeah, uh, yeah. So at, 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 it's something that you can study at an advanced level, not at the school level, but it's certainly something that we should include in our curriculum at the appropriate level. All right. 
All right, let's see. Mm. How is it that the US has so many Nobel Peace Prizes? Isn't it ironic? Isn't it ironic? That's a song by Alanis Morissette. Ironic. Yes, it is ironic that the US has so many Nobel Peace Prizes. These Nobel Prizes are, 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 these are sops that are given to those who, who serve the West. Yeah. So that's how it goes. And yeah, I mean, imagine giving the Nobel Peace Prize to Barack Obama before he did anything at all as US president. And he eventually ended up dropping more bombs on innocent people than his predecessor, George W. Bush. So yeah, and, and one of the Nobel Peace, Nobel Peace Prizes went to Henry Kissinger, who <laughs> was anything but peaceful. Yeah, so that's how it is, you know. So it's ironic, it's, it's hypocrisy. It tells you that we should not take these prizes so seriously. Okay, Sai Suman says, please start channels in Telugu and other languages too for reaching a wider audience. So uh, I regret that I don't speak Telugu, but yeah, in the future, if I would, if I could collaborate from people whose mother tongue is Telugu, then I could certainly, uh, one could explore such things in the future. I personally, unfortunately, do not speak Telugu. So as, as of now, it's it's not possible, but it's certainly something I will keep in mind. Maybe in the future, I may have the opportunity to explore something like this, for sure. All right, uh, lots and lots of questions are coming in. We are reaching the end of today's session, but let's see some more. Um, Uncovered says, can India break free from anti-India forces within India? India can break free of all its issues, internal as well as, as external, in due time. In due time. Right now, India is still not at the stage where it can uh, it can uh, see right now what's happening is that, yes, you, you are right. There are anti-India forces within India. It's what uh, the late General Bipin Singh Rawat uh, referred to as the 2.5 front war, which means that one front is China, one front is Pakistan, and there is half a front from within India itself. You know, And these uh, various anti-India forces that exist within India are all funded and financed from outside of India. That's how it happens. The moment the funding is snipped away, once the money stops flowing, all these things will end. Now, why isn't the government doing it? Because the money, the reason why the government is currently not cracking down all, on all of them is because the money, the financing is coming up, coming into India from forces that are way too powerful for India right now. They're coming from superpowers. Yeah. So uh, now is not the time. But eventually India will. Uh, it's not about cracking down on people and, and doing any such thing. You know, it's just about cutting cutting away, cutting off the sources of funding. The, the moment the money stops flowing, these people will stop their activities. They're doing it for money. These people are mercenaries. They are for hire. You pay them more money, they will do whatever you want them to do. That's how it goes. Some In any society, you have some people who are like this. yeah. So when the time is right, it will be done. And India will indeed be free from anti-India forces from within. All right, all right. Um, <clears throat> uh, what happened to Mohammed bin Salman? What is the recent controversy or incident of Mohammed bin Salman, Prince of Saudi Arabia. I'm not aware of it. Mm, controversy, incident. 
I haven't heard of anything. If something happened in the past two, three days, I may not have heard of it. I was busy traveling, but uh, let's see. If something comes to my notice, I will speak about this. <clears throat> yeah, this is a good question. How many countries with independent foreign policies still exist today? India, to a large extent, has an independent foreign policy. China has an independent foreign policy. It is not dictated by other external forces. So you have China, you have India, you have Russia. We all operate within the constraints that we that that exist in the international system. So India is there, China is there, Russia is there. The U.S. obviously has its independent foreign policy, and it forces other nations to to uh, fall in line with that policy. Within Europe, I think France, to some extent, has a quasi or semi-independent foreign policy to some extent. Uh, but on, on on a lot of issues, they are forced to to accede to U.S. demand. So, for instance, France supports Ukraine in its uh, in the Ukraine conflict, right, against Russia. So, in that case, you see that France has the same policy as the U.S. and, and so on and so forth. So, uh, France has a semi-independent foreign policy. Israel has a semi-independent foreign policy. In Israel, to a large extent, depends on the support and the and alliance from the U.S., so Israel's foreign policy also to some extent or to a large extent or to a medium extent, moderate extent, would be dictated by, by the United States. And what else can I think of? Which other nation? The UK is a non-entity. In, in Europe, it's only France that has a somewhat independent foreign policy. So I would say among the major nations in the world, Iran has a reasonably independent foreign policy. They are constrained by their dependence on on China to some extent, and to some extent on Russia as well. Yeah. So India, China, Russia, and the US. These nations have reasonably, US is completely independent. China is largely independent. India is largely independent. And Russia is largely independent. So these are the four major nations that have independent foreign policies. The other nations are all in some way or the other uh, bending to the will of a larger nation. And most of it is is done at the behest of the US. <laughs> Who would win a war between Chandragupta Maurya and Chinggis Khan? First of all, Ching Chandragupta Maurya and Chinggis Khan would not fight. They would have no reason to fight each other. right? So Chandragupta Maurya had a simple objective to unify the Indian subcontinent politically. That's what he wanted to do. He was not an expansionist in the sense of wanting to expand and conquer in, into other territories that were not Indian historically. right? Um, so Chandragupta was not an expansionist. And he uh, so and, and Chinggis Khan always fought wars in retaliation. He did not start, start any of the wars he fought. But he did respond and, and he destroyed whatever enemies his people had. So uh, so I don't see any reason for the, the two to actually want to fight each other at all. Now, if a war actually happened, who would win? We're not quite sure. Uh, if you look at history, I mean, if you look at overall how things went, uh, one would have to kind of favor Chinggis Khan because he never lost any, any military campaign that he ever fought after he became the emperor of the Mongols. As when he was rising to power, the internal power struggle in Mongolia, he had numerous setback, setbacks, but he always emerged stronger from that. And after he became the great Khan of the Mongols, he did not lose a single military campaign. He would have lost a few battles here and there, but a military campaign is an extended uh, 
campaign with multiple battles. It has a political objective and a military objective. He did not lose a single military campaign ever. He overwhelmed and routed all his opponents, no matter how big, how great, how strong, how powerful they were. So considering that track record that he had, he owned essentially at one point in time nearly half the world and half the known world. If you consider that that track record in mind, it would one would have to one would have to uh, bet in favor of Chinggis Khan. Yeah, but there is no real reason they would have ever fought each other because there was no need for them to fight each other, and we know that they ex existed at very different points in time. All right, all right. Let's take one more question, shall we, or are we done? Let's take one more interesting question. <laughs> Mr. Giga Chat of India. Will Liz Truss lose power in the UK earlier than Boris Johnson as she has been unable, unable to save the economy of the UK? Please understand this, my dear friends. The UK is a vassal state of the US. If you look at the history of the past two decades in the UK, it's a procession of insignificant prime ministers who come and go, who come and go. Some last for a while, some last for a very short period of time. Uh, there was this guy called Gordon Brown who was there for a few years. And then there was, what's the other guy's name? Um, the one who succeeded him or who was before him? I don't even remember the names. That's how insignificant these people are. These people are. These prime ministers are all non-entities. They don't do anything. They don't. They don't achieve much. It's just like what the Americans have done to Japan. Apart from Shinzo Abe, no other Japanese prime minister was allowed to continue or was able to continue for more than a couple of years, two, three years here and there. Ah, David Cameron, Theresa May. Yeah, yeah. Landmark says David Cameron, and uh, and Rahul says Theresa May. Thank you, thank you for reminding me. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the question was about Liz Truss. She is another non-entity. And some people get upset when I say that. Well, deal with it. She is a non-entity. And uh, I don't see her ever being able to make any significant uh, impact on the UK. Anshul says, I think Chinggis Khan invaded Japan. Correct me if, I wrong, if I'm wrong. It wasn't Chinggis Khan who invaded Japan. It was his grandson, Kublai Khan, who attempted to invade Japan. And uh, it did not go well because of divine intervention. The divine wind, kamikaze. Kami means God or, or deity in Japan. So, so uh, uh, Kublai Khan attempted invading Japan and it is the divine typhoons, the divine wind that destroyed the, inv the, the invasion fleet of the Mongol Empire, which was then ruled from Beijing because, because of history, what happened in history. So Chinggis Khan did not ever try invading Japan. The Mongol Empire did under his grandson Kublai Khan. All right, my dear friends, thank you very much for a wonderful session, wonderful questions all over again. And uh, let's do this again tomorrow. Tomorrow will be more focused questions. Tomorrow I will take questions from your comments and we will deal more with geopolitics and history. So thank you very much once again for all the questions. Always great fun taking the questions from the live chat. And I will see you very soon. I will see you tomorrow. Until then, take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.